Hello, I'm Matthew Taylor, and before we bring you this recording of the RSA's Year in Review, I wanted to let you know about one of our other podcasts, Polarised. From fake news and the filter bubble to online trolls and tribalism, Polarised is about what's causing the big divides in our culture and our politics. It's presented by me and the journalist Ian Leslie, who writes about human behaviour. This week, our guest was Jonathan Haidt, one of the leading moral psychologists in the world and author of The Righteous Mind. If you enjoyed his talk at the RSA a couple of weeks ago, this is a good episode to start with. Just search for Polarised in your podcast app. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all the usual places. And now, without further ado, here's the RSA's Year in Review. Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, afternoon everyone. I'm Matthew Taylor. I'm Chief Executive here at the RSA. I'm delighted to welcome all of you to today's uh, special event. It's my great pleasure to welcome you to our annual review of the year. How many years have we been doing these for? Six or seven, I think. <laughs> and basically, the world has become a bit crazier every single year so far. So... <laughs> You know, in my world, you have to distinguish between cycles and trends, and there does seem to be a trend towards overall global madness um, <laughs> over, that, over that period. So who knows who will be next year. Anyway, so we have uh, three distinguished guest speakers, Bidisha, uh, Hugo Rifkin, and Catherine Mayer. Uh, Bidisha is a journalist, broadcaster, critic, and filmmaker for the BBC, Channel 4, Sky News. She specialises in social justice and international human rights issues, doing outreach work in UK prisons, refugee charities, and detention centres. Uh, Catherine Mayer is a best-selling author, journalist, and co-founder and president of the Women's Equality Party. She's also executive director of the think tank Datum Future and is on the founding committee of the Women of the World Festival. Hugo is a journalist, writer, and broadcaster. He's a regular columnist and features writer for The Times. He's won multiple awards for his journalism, featured, and he's featured across GQ, The Spectator, The Evening Standard, and BBC Radio 4. So, uh, as I've already implied, they join us today to reflect on another year of turbulent politics, polarised media, landmark cultural moments, from the Trump baby balloon to the fallout from the Me Too movement. The theme of political and social division has run throughout the year's biggest stories, not least in the B question. I'm not even going to say the word. I've kind of got to the point I, can't, I just can't say it anymore. Uh, are we descending into culture wars? What does identity politics uh, have to do? I said to the panel just before they came in that this morning I listened to my favourite podcast, apart from, of course, RSA's Polarised, which is my favourite podcast, but my second favourite podcast, which is Talking Politics with David Ronsman, and he's probably our leading political scientist, and his latest talk, which I encourage you to listen to, culminates in him saying that if we want to defend democracy, and if we want democracy to survive, one of his two big ideas is that we should lower the, lower the voting age to, first person to get it, six. <laughs> six. So, and he is a very serious thinker, so these are... Times which call for radical uh, thinking, and we're going to be hearing radical thinking, I'm sure, from our uh, three speakers. They're going to speak for about five, six minutes. Um, we'll have a bit of a chat. We'll open it all up to you, and we'll finish promptly at two. So let's get started. Uh, Badisha, over to you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, let me start this by saying that I hope I'm completely wrong, and my sense of <laughs> foreboding and pessimism are misplaced, and also that in our q and I would love to hear um, rebuttals and responses. Um, I think that mainstream political rhetoric has become divisive and insular, that the tone of discussion has grown coarse, and that this coarseness is putting off and excluding 
anyone who don't or won't or doesn't want to communicate at that level. Across left and right alike, public debate has been corrupted by aggression, factionalism, sloganeering, and posturing. And in the wider populace, underneath the self-righteous philistinism which seems to have overtaken us are real grievances that were incubated by decades of underinvestment in basic services, education, infrastructure, and healthcare, by stalled social mobility, painful inequality, and the destruction of workers' rights, benefits, and job security. It's happening all over the world as infrastructure and mobility and ordinary people's safety net and sense, of, and sense of human cohesion and connection dissolve around us. When you have an unhappy populace, secretive players with vested interests know how to take advantage, to exploit uncertainty and to scapegoat anyone who is more powerless, who is different, foreign, other, distant, threatening. In these conflicts, what frightens me is that there is no single front. Instead, there are a do dozen different points of fracture and crisis. Cyber warfare, automation, and climate change are, are ushering in an unknown future. A new generation of technocratic power holders, such as Facebook and Amazon and Google, seem to be above the law and wield more influence than individual nation states. Mysterious networks of vested interests, think of Steve Bannon and Aaron Banks, are able to skew public opinion and sow political division. And we're seeing outlandish conspiracy theories being proven true, such as the NSA and GCHQ spying on us through our devices, Russia destabilizing international affairs, and dark money organizing and funding the swerve to the far right. We are now in a worse position than we were during the first two world wars. I didn't have first two world wars written down. That's a Freudian slip. I don't mean that we're about to head towards the third one. Uh, because there are no big blocks of allies standing united against a common enemy, where it used to be the liberal Democrats against the authoritarian fascists. Instead, we're seeing strange counterintuitive overtures and unholy alliances, like Trump's admiring comments about Putin and Kim Jong-un. We notice centrist and left-leaning parties absorbing the concerns and kowtowing to the interests of the far right, who have made strong gains across the world system. They're either winning formal representation in parliaments or gaining such popular support that they're able to control the narrative and skew the national debate in their direction, leaving everyone else reactive and defensive and swimming in their wake. We're seeing the frightening manifestation of what I call a macho principle in global rulers, men such as Putin, Xi Jinping, Trump, Orban, Erdogan, Salvini, Duterte, and Bolsonaro. They share the same qualities, values, and demeanor, despite apparent differences of historical context, geographic location, and political system. They share a certain misogyny, racism, homophobia, and dogmatic authoritarianism. Leading up to this, we've seen the conflation of several different issues linking together the fear of terrorism, Islamophobia, skepticism about multiculturalism, aversion to immigration, and scaremongering around refuge and asylum. There's a tendency towards insularity, monoglot ignorance, narrow nativism, and jingoism, which are not the same as being proud of where you come from or where you live. Ugly hate crimes and racist violence against anyone who looks or sounds different are increasing, and on the streets, not just online. 
Ordinary people are uncertain and afraid, and state action is doing nothing to dispel those fears, the fears of those often the most powerless who find themselves living in a hostile environment. We're seeing the normalization of detention, invasive control in the name of security, imprisonment, internment, militarization, surveillance, ghettoization, and state brutality. I believe that the political system doesn't necessarily need to be smashed up and reconfigured. We just need a strong, cohesive, distinctive opposition, one which stands against what is happening now, faces contemporary issues head on, acknowledges hidden truths, and provides a counterpoint. The people on this panel don't all share the same politics, but we have a common enemy in xenophobia and thuggery. If we, don't get it together, we're if we don't get it together, we're handing the world over to society's worst tendencies. A macho, violent race war is exactly what both ISIS and the white supremacists want to happen. Social breakdown with the spoils up for grabs is exactly what rich and powerful vested interests want. Division, escapism, and isolation is exactly what technocrats like Facebook and Google want. The better to monetize all those clicks and maintain the flow of information and fake news, keeping us hooked to our screens, which give tech companies a global clout far bigger than any one political state. And a loss of faith in institutions and organizations of justice, in reasoned debate and events like this, government and culture, are what the Philistines want, so they can seize power and rule by mob force and the threat of violence. The fascist tendency crosses vast differences of language, region, and culture, and has infiltrated mainstream discourse. It is difficult to find a united bloc of international allies who will work together to fight it. I'm not worried by the individual negative factors I've outlined, but that the fact that they're happening at the same time and in multiple countries, and by the lack of effective, unified, mainstream opposition. So I hope that today we chronicle solutions as well as chronicling problems and find ways of mending our uncertainty, division, and anxiety. Thank you. Um. I'm going to ask each of you one question uh, after you've spoken, and then we'll have the general conversation. So, Felicia, that was incredibly eloquent. I mean, I guess the question is, for me, is that listening to the first 90% of what you said, it, it kind of felt like, right, this is so urgent, pressing, difficult, and the bad guys, and they are guys, as you said, are so kind of dangerous that the natural conclusion for that is almost the response should be anything, any means necessary, right? But actually, the, 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 the twist in the tail is you don't want an any means necessary response. You want a reasoned, pragmatic, unified response. So how do we kind of, how do we kind of get the, the sense of crisis and emergency you described, but then respond to it in a kind of calm, unified, pragmatic way? I, I I think fighting fire with fire with these vested interests isn't going to work. I mean, when I read Carol Cadwallader's work in The Observer, where she uncovers this weird network of connections between Trump, Brexit, dark money, surveillance, online, you just think, my God, this, this is like a film. It's like a terrible, cheesy Hollywood film. And if everything she's saying is true, which I, which I believe and think is correct, we can't we don't have enough money to do that, and we don't have enough levels of subterfuge to do that. So that is so fighting fire, fire with fire is not possible. 
What I'd like to see is, is an acknowledgement that all of this toxic matter which is rising to the surface is true and correct. What's happened is that we're finding out all these details which are not secret, but there's been complete silence from the top. And all I'm saying is that we need the governments that we've elected and the opposition to stand up and say, this is what is really happening, and not to be talking from the sidelines or bringing up some esoteric other point. Uh, so I think that I would like to see a piercing of the denialism, because what's happening now is that we all are going, well, troubled times, troubled times, troubled times. And then you turn on PMQs, or you look at the Andrew Marshall or something like that, and it feels as though the people at the top must know all of this, but aren't referencing it. So I think the first thing is acknowledging all of this, and that will actually take some of the panic out of the situation. Great, thank you. Catherine. Thank you. Um, thank you for the invitation to sum up 2018 when 2018 is definitely not yet finished with us. Um, I, was re <laughs> I was really laughing at the prospect of this. Um, I agree with an awful lot of what Badisha has just said. Um, this year has been defined by turbulence. Um, I also agree with her call for a response to it. I mean, I, I feel like I've already been testing out some of those responses, both through actually co-founding a party that is riding some of that turbulence and trying to shape it in benign ways. And also, I'm now the director of a think tank which is grappling with the impacts of data-driven technologies and is, as it, and is recognizing that these are huge forces shaping our world and that they will go on shaping our world and that we have to engage, we have to understand one of the key points also that Badish is making there is we have to understand these things as a, as a starting point to making sure that, that what was, you used a wonderful phrase, pierce the denialism. We have to, you know, another part of the denialism around data-driven technologies is that you can some way stand in front of them and stop them from happening. That isn't going to happen. So the question is how we actually understand and use and recognize the opportunities they present while also massively mitigating the challenges they represent. So for me, this is all very interconnected, what we're describing. And... Um, some of it surprising, but a lot of it left me very unsurprised because the thing that we're also witnessing is the impotence of the old guard, of, of the establishment in the face of this turbulence. There was so much complacency out there. And you saw it in just about everything. I mean, the, you know, I'm a Remainer, but even the choice of the word, I was never a Remainer to remain. There were so many things that needed to be changed. Um, but the ways in which that campaign was waged showed how little connection there were to the real problems and issues out there. It's now very well known that the campaign sidelined women. I saw that kind of from the inside, how that was happening. Um, but it's still, it's actually post, post the referendum been just as bad. You've seen um, parliamentary debates I mean, Parliament is hardly well represented uh, in, you know, fewer than 30% of um, MPs are women, um, uh, uh, sorry, just over 30% of MPs and fewer than 30% of uh, peers. Um, but 90% of the debate time has been taken up by men. And this isn't just a sort of 
point scoring point. This matters because so much of the whole discussion is about really big, serious things that impact all of us but get dismissed as women's issues. You saw that when one of the clear, likely impacts of Brexit, and sorry to keep saying the word that pains you, is um, going to be the, um, the uh, really damaging impact on the care sector and the government coming out with advice that basically said, yes, this is going to be a problem, and the way that we'll solve it is have women stop working and do unpaid labour. Um, women will take up the slack. That was official government advice. And, um, you know, in, I'm, I'm actually a dual national. I'm a US citizen, so I get to vote there. Rather satisfying um, result in Wisconsin in the midterms. Um, much less so, of course, in 2016. But when I voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016, again, I wasn't voting for the status quo. I was voting for a change to the status quo. You may say I chose the wrong candidate. And in that sense alone, that's, that's the only point where I share some kinship, I think, with, with the people who elected Trump. Um, they were certainly looking for a change in the status quo. All the time, there is this tin ear of the establishment. To, and, and, you know, I use the establishment knowing to what extent I myself have been part of it, by the way. But I don't think that's always recognized by people in the, in the establishment, whether it's the media establishment or the political one. Um, Badisha talked about the ways regressive populism is springing up around the world. Uh, this is a response to some of this, but it represents a huge risk because always um, these populist uh, movements are about turning the clock back on areas of progress. They're about repression. But they also are representing a tearing down of some of the old structures that prevented progress. So for me, you know, one of the, the phrases I tend to fall back on is, is seize the turbulence. Our only possibility now, and it is very urgent, is to recognize this period of turbulence as something unavoidable and therefore something we have to grab hold of and shape in, in serious ways. Um, Data-driven technologies are behind it. If we have a chance to talk about that, um, I'd really like to, because I salute Carol Cadwallader's very great reporting on this, but there was a lot of also misunderstanding, I think, of some of the issues. And something I could talk about in granular ways, if there are time, as somebody who now does politics, um, actually running election campaigns and understanding this, is a lot of the micro-targeting we were talking about happens absolutely legally, and yet is, means that it is easier now than ever before to literally buy votes. And it, it is maintaining an establishment that has traditionally, I keep using the word establishment, but you have to look at those statistics of how white parliament is, how few women there are in it, how few people there are from working class backgrounds, and understand that this is a system that shuts people out. And this ability to actually buy votes is absolutely widespread and electoral law in this country and in many other countries has not kept pace with technological change and technological abilities. And there is a data inequality that is driving things very fast. So as I say, I mean, I think 
in the Cambridge Analytica thing, so much attention was paid to how that data got to Cambridge Analytica that people missed a wider dimension. They also missed the dimension that um, if you're talking about that ability to buy votes, it's much more potent in a first-past-the-post system. Your professor talked about lowering the voting age, but actually if you have a proportional system, you're a lot safer from that kind of data inequality. Um, the great thing about this year was that it brought together women in resistance uh, in, you know, and, and some of, the, some of my, my high points of the year, I have to mention the referendum in Ireland, the abortion referendum, and all of those people, you know, of all genders traveling back to Ireland to vote. That was an amazing um, expression of democracy still working in, in a very important way. Um, here you've had, um, you had some breakthroughs as well. You had home use uh, on abortion pill. Um, you had, um, in the US midterms, of course, just now, you had a breakthrough in terms of, um, you had the first two Native American women elected. You had the first two Muslim women elected. You had an expression of people wanting change and being able to use existing democratic systems to do that. But you also have had, um, you know, the, the, a lot of people trying to sow divisions. Now, the women's movement's very good at dividing itself, but if I had, could, I, I should have just made a list of how many times I have been invited by the BBC this year in the name of balance to debate whether the gender pay gap is real. Has Me Too gone too far? Is sexual harassment even real? Um, you know, the, the, this, is, this is actually, when I talk about the establishment, what I mean is this incredibly myopic, this is why I liked Badisha's phrase so much about piercing the denialism. Stop saying that. The more you say it, the more... Although I, I think it sounds really stupid when you say it again. Sorry, <laughs> I can like tell... It's a bubble. I'm also, I'm, I'm also good at reading Matthew's face, and Matthew's face is saying that I've ranted for too long. Um, <laughs> see? Um, so, his whole head saying it. So, so I'll shut up. But what, but so, so, so I would say this, is, this turbulence, you know... Lots of, lots of things coming together, but lots of people still misunderstanding their own role in it and their own failures in it and the ways out of it. And I think they're quite clear. Uh, so my question to you uh, is, is, I've just been reading a book by Christophe Gouillet, I think he writes for The Guardian, and um, what's interesting about this book is it's a very, very, very angry book, and it also predicts absolutely the Yellow Vest uh, riots in Paris. It was written, being published in, in France 18 months ago, I think. It hasn't yet been published in, I was reading a proof ver version of it. Um, basically, his view, I think, would be the, the conversation about identity politics, which is a kind of a conversation which is both people on the left attacking right identity politics, like Trump identity politics, um, and also um, the left's own identity politics, uh, is a massive smokescreen to hide the fact that in the end what's going on is that globalization was a group good for one group of people, and people like us, and it was a bit shit for everybody else. 
and that it's not the thing that is required to change that is a massive shift of power and 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 a massive shift in the economy and it's not from the top one percent and it's not from these terrible guys it's from us it's from people like us to the people that globalization and that's not the conversation we want to have we want to have a conversation about something more cultural easier than this really deep thing. And I'm just saying that because you said we're part of the establishment. I think that's exactly... He would say yes. Yes. And, and more than you possibly even acknowledge. Oh, no, no, I would acknowledge it. Um, I suspect there... You know, I would definitely include us in that. I might include some of us more than others, but yes. Um, and... Um, it's the, the, I, I was laughing because I should have included in my list of things that I'm um, invited to debate is identity politics being to blame for everything. Um, identity politics is a phrase that I mostly have um, shouted at me by angry white men um, who are in some way at the top of the tree and very often don't realize it. They are very often of the left and they accuse me of splitting the left vote, but they are also of the right, and then they think that in some way they misunderstand what we're doing is being trying to take away from, rather than to acknowledge the intersections of different kinds of disadvantage and to dismantle them, that it is an approach to the structural causes of inequality. And that point about the global inequality and globalization, if you overlay the um, gender statistics on the ownership, uh, the wealth statistics of the world, you find that women are always in the poorest segments. The, there are, you know, different women are going to be even poorer. But the, but the idea that these things are, are not connected, that's why I was saying there is an amazing sleight of hand that goes on that somehow always seems to suggest that there are these women's issues that are separate from other issues and that kind of we put them over there, we put them on woman's hour, we get two women to shout at each other about it. These are absolutely core to everything we're discussing. And I really, the only frustration I have around these identity politics discussions, as I say, is that it's so often men in some way trying to say that we're trivializing a debate as opposed to actually pointing out the things that need to be being discussed by men as well as by women. Great, thank you. Um, so, uh, Hugo, you're a kind of voice of reason in a newspaper which sees itself as the kind of home of reason in these tough, troubled times. Uh, d is, is reason going to help us? I mean, you've got your own comments to make, but I, I'll start with you with a yeah. question, which is, is reason going to help us out of this? Um, perhaps not. <laughs> I mean, look, I'm sort of... Um, I, I mean, I guess I'm trying, to, I'm trying to frame what I was about to say in, 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 terms, in terms of your question. Um, we are not operating in an age of reason, which is not necessarily an attack on what we are operating in. It's simply not what is going on. What I wanted to do was, it's very hard to look at the whole year, and I'm quite pleased that I think all three of us are really talking about very similar sort of things. Please might be the wrong word. Disappointed might be another way of putting that. But let's go with pleased. Um, I, wanted to, I wanted to talk about three particular issues of the year and how they kind of feed back into everything else, which comes back to a lot of the, the sort of themes we're talking about. The first, I'm afraid, is Brexit. Um, we do have to talk about Brexit. And it's been quite a weird year with the, for it to have been so dominated by Brexit because, of course, there hasn't been Brexit. We've had a whole year of Brexit without any Brexit. And it, it's quite hard to pick a, a major point in a year 
of Brexit that doesn't include Brexit and say that was the bit that, that really mattered. I thought about focusing on any of the resignations. There have been so many resignations. The, the Johnson resignation, the, the Davis resignation, the Raab resignation. Theresa May, I think, has lost 22 ministers so far. And some weeks it's like there's so many people trying to resign, they can't all resign. They're like the three stooges trying to get through a door and they get stuck. Um, but instead of that, I thought I would actually just focus on precisely what is happening now with Theresa May's deal. Because there are many ways you can look at Theresa May's deal. You can like it, although it seems nobody does, or you can dislike it. Um, but really what she's trying to do is, well, she's trying to do what's failed to happen since the vote, which is to bring everybody together, right? She's tried to go down the middle. She, she denies that, but she has. She's tried to get something that, that leavers won't hate and remainers won't hate and just see if she can sell that. And what's fascinating about where we are now is that really, really hasn't worked. Nobody wants to go down the middle. Everybody is furious that it doesn't work from their own perspective. I, mean, I don't say that in a projecting other people way. I'm furious. It doesn't work from my own perspective. But, no, but the idea of drawing everything together, finding a solution, hey, nobody wants it, but we can live with it, nobody wants that. That's just not what we want to do. The second thing I wanted to talk about was Labour and anti-Semitism, which has been the Labour Party's big issue of the year. And um, again, I tried to think which, what's, the, what's the, the detail, the event to focus on in this. And I thought about focusing on, focusing on the, the, the rally that the Jewish community did in, in Parliament Square back in March. Uh, but that didn't seem, that wasn't quite it, although I will come back to that. The one I ended up coming back to was the Labour Party conference, where they debated whether to adopt the international definition of, um, of anti-Semitism, and in the end agreed they would, and yet it sort of didn't make any difference. Uh, and the, sort of the dynamic of that whole fight, really, it was a fight within the Labour Party where you had on one side, you had what you might call the sort of McDonald faction, which was saying, look, it doesn't matter if we don't really, really believe there's a problem here. Let's make all the moves of taking this seriously. Let's show people we take this seriously. Otherwise, it's really, really going to hurt us. And then you had what you might call the Corbyn faction, uh, which was saying, no, we don't do that. We, if we don't believe there is a problem, we will not pretend we do believe there is a problem. We're just not going to do it. And so in the end, they, yes, they sort of adopted the definition, while kind of disavowing it, which again was this kind of desire to go down the middle, and it didn't work. No, I'm not saying it should have worked, but it didn't work. Nobody wanted to do that. Everybody, every, it's all, everything's existential. It's all or nothing for everybody. I hope that makes sense. Um, the third thing I wanted to look at, and we've talked about it already a bit, was the, the, the Facebook Cambridge Analytica meltdown. Um, and again, I wanted to find the exact moment where that all clicked into focus. And for me, it was the point where a while after this, Mark Zuckerberg was before, before the Senate, and he was asked by, uh, a, a, I think, an 84-year-old senator, I forget his name, if Facebook doesn't charge for use, how do you make money? And he gave him this very blank Mark Zuckerberg look and said, Senator, we sell ads. And for me, that's the moment where it's like the bits of the world that weren't already aware suddenly became aware of what Facebook is, what this thing that now sits at the heart of our discourse really is. And it is a thing that takes data, packages it up, and sells it to people to target other people. That's it. And we've sort of operated in massive denial of this. And this leads to a lot of, a lot of the odder things that are going on in our politics right now. In Britain, you know, the fights over referendum spending with vote leave being fined and whatever the hell Aaron Banks was up to, we shall find out eventually. But also in the US with Russian involvement in the US election, 
which a lot of that comes straight back to Facebook. And also in other parts of the world, you look at what's been happening in Burma, in Pakistan, in Nigeria. They make our problems with social media, fake news, and sort of polarization look, look petty. You know, you've got, you've, got, you've, got, um, you've got riots and death and genocide going, going on there. And you can trace a lot of that really back to the way in which Facebook is being used, to, not just Facebook, but Facebook in particular, is being used to spread and sell messages. And we have one of the most important sort of political questions going forward, which and it frustrates me because people don't quite regard this as a political question as much as they should, is how much this sort of stuff is affecting us, is going to affect us, what we ought to do about it, over and above the sort of issues it makes us focus on. Um, so I guess the main point I wanted to make is all of this really comes back to the same thing. Uh, I don't want to call it identity politics because we use the phrase so often that it's sort of lost meaning, it just becomes a term, but it comes back to a, a hardening of what we are. And I don't even say that as, again, I don't say that as a criticism. Um, you can see it on, you know, if, if you look at labor and anti-Semitism, you could see that with the Jewish community. The Jewish community having decided this is who we are, we've had enough. That wouldn't have happened 10 years ago. The Jewish community wouldn't have behaved like that. But people are beginning to sort of identify more closely with what they are. It's what happens with Catherine's fantastic party, which I support, but it's still women motivating as women. We are leavers, we are remainers, we are Corbynites. It is a hardening of identities. And and an inability, an unwillingness to find a mid, a sort of any sort of route down the middle because it's too much sacrifice for each one of us to do. It's a kind of siloing. And I think that's been the big theme of the year, and I fear it will be a bigger theme of next year and perhaps years to come. Um, so... Uh, I might never get asked to speak, uh, to chair an event at the RSA again because of what I'm going to do, but um, I, I'm going to kind of have three minutes myself to try to describe what I think is going on because it just comes off the back of what you said, but I also wanted to kind of take us to a bit to kind of what, what do we do. So, and this is a very schematic way of thinking about things, but nevertheless, um, you can kind of think of, of, of what drives people um, as having kind of three fundamental kind of human drivers which are reflected in kind of the way the world works. So we're driven by authority. We're driven, and that's where we associate that with the state, but, it, you know, authority and leadership and strategy and expertise and all that stuff. Then there's, we're driven, then there's the market, and we're driven by self-interest. We're driven by our desire to be the best person that we can be for ourselves, whatever that is, a kind of acquisitiveness and competition and all that kind of stuff. And then thirdly, and, and psychology bears this out, we're driven by connectedness. Um, and a force that I would describe as solidarity, and that's to do with kind of belonging, you know, our belongingness. Now, my argument would be that, that, that neoliberalism, which is an awful kind of phrase, because it's just the very, the very fact you use that phrase means 101 other things about you, uh, but nevertheless, financial globalization, that's probably a better phrase, is basically a deal between the market and the state. And the deal is um, the market financial capitalism says to the state, if you create a really conducive environment where markets can expand and, and, and do their stuff and we can make as much money as we want to, we'll, the economy will grow and we'll give you some money and you can use some of that money to deal with some of the effects of what we're doing. What is missed out in all of that is the connectedness piece. And so what you end up with is what I would call a solidarity deficit. So, and then there's a left and a right. So the left solidarity deficit is inequality and the failure to recognize uh, minority groups, minority status groups, and there's all the rage about that. The right, or the populist right's anger, is about things like nationhood, cohesion, tradition, 
these kinds of things. So in a sense, on the left and the right, you've got both of them responding to the fact that the kind of solidar solidaristic connected part of what makes us human beings has been disregarded in the system that's been dominant in the world for the last 25 years. Now, the problem is that a politics suffused by solidarity has certain characteristics. It is about groups. It is a politics about group, and group is in as well as out. So it's a politics about in-group and out-group. Whether it's left or right, it's a politics of in-group and out-group. My group's right, your group's to blame. Yeah? Secondly, it's a very moralized politics. So it's not technocratic politics is my idea is better than your idea and we can look at the evidence and work it out, right? Individualistic politics is my politics to give you 10 quid more than his politics or her politics. Solidaristic politics is I'm right and this person's wrong and they're morally wrong. It's their motives that are wrong. Not just they haven't just got a bad idea, their motives are wrong. And uh, anyone will tell you in any situation, whether it's an interpersonal relationship or anything, if the people think the argument is about motives and who's morally right or wrong, you are stuck. Any mediation process begins with the process of getting both sides to recognize that both of them think they're coming from a position of moral authority. Because unless you get to that position, you can't get anywhere at all. So you've got, therefore, a vis... And the other thing about solidaristic politics is it's visceral. As Will Davis says, you know, the, the, the Enlightenment distinction between mind and body has broken down now completely. Emotions are as important as reason. And so... The question for me is, if that's right, if we are in this solidaristic period of politics when group morality, viscerality is what's driving it because we built up such a kind of deficit in the way the world was run, if that's right, I don't know how we get out of it because that is the nature of that politics. And that's exactly what I was saying to you at the beginning, is that your account is to describe all of that, but yet you still kind of want reason to get us out of it. And Will Davis ends up by saying the only thing you can do as a progressive is to have your own war. You have to have a war on climate change, a war on poverty. You've got to be just as angry, just as... I'm not sure that's right. So um, uh, that my long-winded mini-speech uh, leads to a kind of question for all of you. Uh, you know, David Runciman, he, you know, good for David Runciman. It might sound a bit bonkers, but lowering the voting age to six is at least a practical proposal. Um, <laughs> it's a proposal. It's a proposal. It could be done. It is a doable proposal. It, you know, um, it, uh, have any of you got any... I, I have my own, which is much greater use of deliberative democracy as a way of... which I spoke about in my annual lecture this year. Do, you, do any of you have specific, concrete things that might start to turn the tide? Not. Well, give us one. One will do. I can't give you one. I have to, I, I have to, respond, please, please. I have to respond to yeah. one thing, which okay. is this notion of solidaristic politics, by which I suspect you mean the kind of politics that I do, being in some way divorced from what you referred to as the market politics. Gender, the whole point about gender equality politics is that they're actually better for everyone. They're better for men. No, no, so, it's, Trump, so it's reconnecting... No, let me be clear. Trump is solidaristic politics. I'm not... I'm, it's not OK. I'm not, it's not a, it's, but, it's but, a, you, but you assumed that the Women's Equality Party was about women. It isn't. It's about people. It's about everybody. So that was just a... That was a... OK. I mean, don't take it the wrong way. I've, I, have, I have voted for you. Um, but, um, Thank you. It, <laughs> but it's... Um, of course, it's... I mean, of course, look, you... you, you you're choosing an identity to band around, and that's the one. I mean, you can you can say it. I mean, you can you can take no, any. No, we're pointing out an inequality we want to rectify for the good but of everyone. Can, but you so can, but you can so say that about a... it. You can say that about anything. <laughs> no, I'm saying it about women being. <laughs> well, I'm sure you are. Um, one and, could say that and, about it. And, and and the, the you know and there is an overwhelming wealth of evidence that it is better for men 
gender, gender equal countries, yes. more gender equal, there are no gender equal I mean, countries, why but more, for you, but yes. <laughs> so, 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 so I'm, but my spit, there are, there are, one is a misunderstanding in what we're talking about. Personalization is something that isn't just imposed by companies like Facebook. The possibility that the uh, social media companies, um, but also the whole thing about data, is that it enables personalization. Personalization can be good if you want personalized services, but it also enables filter bubbles. So these are often self-created. So to the connectedness point, there are various ways that you can look at creating ways that people talk beyond those filter bubbles. There are actual versions of assisted technology for civic use being used in Taiwan at the moment, for example, um, in order to bring together rather than divide. Because the problem with the way Twitter works, for example, is that you... Sorry, you do, do you think... I mean, that's really interesting. Do you think... It will work. I, it is I have lost count of the number of people I have had in my office over the years wanting the RSA to get involved in projects, saying, I've created a website, I've created a space, I've created a channel for people who disagree with each other to come together and work out the differences. And they have one characteristic in common. Nobody goes to them. The whole, the whole government in Taiwan is being run using these assisted technologies to do things like decide on, they used oh, right. it for, for yeah. they used it for um, licensing Uber in Taipei. Oh, yeah. right. okay. um, but, it, but you could use it for much more divisive right. but debate. But it's about decision making rather it's about, than... It, but it's, but it's recognising what personalisation is, what the impact is of these silos that, that Hugo was talking about and how to get outside the silos. So that is, that is a, we'll start with that, a practical you, you proposal. I think it's very easy to get outside the silos. I mean, we, we, we do get outside our, our silos in, in order to find, thing, find things to hate and bring back into our silos and complain about, you know. It's, it's, so I, so I, I don't think the problem is that, is that we, yeah. we, we don't see enough. We see plenty. We just have got into the habit. We have been sold the habit of, of grouping in this way. Um, I mean, in terms of answers, I was sort of, I've been thinking a lot lately about whether, whether um, how, to put, how to put this right. Uh, whether the kind of safety first option just doesn't work anymore. You know, thinking about this, particularly in terms of Brexit, I was thinking, is the situation we're in now, where effectively what Theresa May tried to do, although she denied it for a long time, is let's take the edge off this, let's not go full throttle, let's try and retain some control over this process, whether that actually helps in the long run, or whether you actually just, you know what, if people say let's go into the abyss, you need to let them dive into the abyss and claw your way out again. Um, but then I realized that's what America's doing. And, um, and it doesn't seem to be working out so well either. So, um, yeah, yeah. so I mean, I, I, it, it's, it's tempting to think if, you, if people have what I believe to be self-destructive urges, you know what, give them it, let them do it, facilitate that, then they'll learn. They don't learn. They harden up. They, they blame other people for the reasons why it's going wrong. Um, and so I don't... But to, sorry, to come back where I started, I don't think it's enough to say you just need to broaden people's horizon, let them see more. We see plenty. We see an awful lot. We're just enjoying ourselves, hating everything. Uh, so we've got, basically, I think Catherine and I agree on greater use of deliberative methodologies, or you'd have no, a great emphasis on technology. I'd have, you know, the... the no, no, both. But both, uh, you, yeah? You, you, so you, we agree with that. You restricted me to one. Yeah. And we, I, we, we I'd, I'd already said proportional yeah. representation, by the way, as right. well. So... 
Vidisha? Uh, I've got a few specific ones. That oh, I, you've and got I, to have one as well, though. Go okay, on. just yeah. one. Uh, okay, so um, I don't like, I agree with Hugo, I don't like this kind of tabula rasa death drive, let's just burn it all down and see what happens. I think that's ridiculous, mythical kind of thinking. People who can't remember the war. Yeah, exactly, and the, the world wars are within living memory. So um, I would like to see, I don't want to presuppose how anyone voted in, in the referendum or in elections. I would like to see the formal appointed opposition oppose so that we have uh, distinct, different political parties, which are mainstream, who have distinct and defined um, beliefs and manifestos that they stick to, and then people can decide. And can I just do a few, very, very briefly, one, one sentence more. either. Um, we are not at the mercy of online. We humans, my mother's a computer scientist, we humans wrote the software for this. It is not an alien being. I would like to see the laws of offline be applied to the laws of online. That doesn't mean censorship. It means that things which are illegal when you and I are sitting next to each other, we don't incite hatred or violence. I say where my income comes from. I know what your job is. I know what your real name is. I know who I am. These are just applied to the online world. They are not just marketplaces which appeared in a virtual space. They are companies and businesses, and they are making a very small number of people extremely rich in ways that mean that Mark Zuckerberg, when he's called to parliament, simply doesn't show up and he has no accountability for that. You can't sling him in prison for it. This one man is not the king of the universe. He's just this young guy that runs a business and he should be subject to the law and regulation as any business owner is, no more and no less than anything else. And I also think that we have to stop normalizing extreme views. If you look back years, do you remember when Nigel Farage was being invited onto all these debate programs and nobody knew who he was? People thought he was a crackpot and people watched him for entertainment value. All the things that he was talking about, the values he was expressing, are now in the mainstream. They're not fringe anymore. Somehow we allowed him to come in, him and people like him, not just him, to come in and it's like dropping ink into water to colour the entire debate. So I'd like to see broadcasters... But he, but, but, okay, I'm going to open up the room, but he, he didn't just speak for himself, though. He spoke for a lot of people. You, you can't... You, I don't see how you can... You know, I, I find personally loathsome, but you know, although he's now can all, he's now on the far left wing of UKIP, I understand. It's kind of a, <laughs> but um, the world's gone to a sort of militant tendency of UKIP. But um, but but you know, he 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 he, he, he did speak for people, sure, you know, and we all aren't, and people like us underestimated like us. how much he spoke for other people as well. Actually, so I don't agree with. Yeah. Would you not be interested, right now, in seeing a public debate? two of them sitting on a platform between Nigel Farage and what's his name, Batten of UKIP, about what is wrong with Tommy, Ro Tommy Robinson. Because I... Would I like to see it? I wouldn't... I, wouldn't I would like to see it, um, and I find it I hard... I might like to read a transcript I later. I, like that, that, that'll do. But I, I find it hard to say that kind of discussion is something that shouldn't happen and shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't publicly happen. So, I mean, I, 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 I just don't think... I don't think we have a way out of anything by... Um, it depends what it takes up the airtime for. Yeah, exactly. The argument that but we would have is... But airtime never ends now. No, 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 but, you know, I talked to you about how, how we're always... You know, Badish and I were talking about this earlier. We are always invited on not to discuss how we might move forward with things in constructive ways, but to debate whether inequality actually even exists. But so so, so there is... And, and we are set up... To, but, to so, but so don't. What's glorious now is you have a platform anyway. You don't need to do that. It's not. I mean, the the the, 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 the sort of we're still in this sort of gatekeeper mentality whereby whereby who's on question time really matters. It doesn't matter. 
Um, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a million other things there. No, no one, there's no such thing as no platforming right, somebody I'm going to be the rest of the um, audience. It, it, is, it is symptomatic of where the world is that even, even the RSA annual review is becoming tetchy. So uh, <laughs> it's always been so well-mannered and positive before. Okay, let me just tell you, can you keep your, your, your contributions as short as possible? What I'll do is, rather than kind of questions, I'll take lots of different views and ask the panel to come back before we close. Okay, say your name and, and be short and sharp, and here comes the mic. If um, my name is Darren O'Neill, uh, if I were to describe any one of the panel as a drop of ink in a pool of pure water, they'd be offended. But I hear the panel say that quite casually about Nigel Farage without any thought, because they don't mind offending people like him, but they would not tolerate it being said about themselves. Uh, could I have a reaction to that? Um, I want to respond to Padisha because she asked me to respond to her. Um, in the, I grew up in the 70s. I faced physical and verbal anti-Semitism. I saw the rise of the National Front. I saw riots. I don't think a lot has changed. I don't see the dark world. I just think the internet and social media has amplified it. But I get extremely disturbed when you use terms like vested interests, dark forces, because what you're doing is what you accuse others of doing, which is making people other and saying, I'm all right. He can't talk because I don't like what he stands for. He can't talk. I don't like what he stands for. But we can talk and we can say what we like. And I find that immensely disturbing. Because while I also find Farage loathsome, I think we have democratic means of taking him on rather than demonising people. And I think it's demonising from all sides that causes the issues. I just that, by vested interests, I mean all the stuff that Carol Cadwallader was finding. So sort of Aaron Banks, the... the term, because vested interests and dark forces are often used to describe... Certain groups, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they, amongst other things. Yeah. No, I hear what you say, and also that I completely agree that the far right are now mobilising that, and so one of their tactics, in fact, we didn't get to this, is that kind of the mentioning George Soros. There's that campaign against him, and that's, and it's also about the way that they can take on the language of the progressives and the opposition, and then somehow use the phrase and then bleed it of all meaning, and then use it to attack. And I hear what you say. I mean, I, one little comment I make as we move on is, yeah, is. Before the Trump vote and the Brexit vote, I'd go to meetings of people on the left boasting about how brilliantly they use social media to get people to vote. And nobody said it was, you know, malevolent then. It was just a technique to get good guys elected. The second it's used for the bad guys, it suddenly becomes something different. So you've got to be a bit careful about that because this, this stuff was happening before. That's, that's what I was uh, saying about the inequity in data. It's, it's very... There's okay. a lot that yes, isn't yes, yes. being understood. Jeremy Kaplan. The theme I wanted to pick up on is it all seems to be about unifying. Well, there seems to be a complete inability for us as a race to unify on anything. Your example of Theresa May, she's trying to get people to unify by going down the middle and nobody wants to join her. The United States, the word united, well, it's never been so disunited. The European Union is falling apart because the Brits don't want to be part of it. The United Kingdom is falling apart because the Scots don't want to be part of that. Iron ironically, the only other union that seems to be going in the opposite direction is the recreation of the Soviet Union under good old Putin, who wants to protect all the Russians again. But we seem to be in a, unable to unify. And how do we tackle that? Hold on to that question, panel. Hugo, come in very briefly, and then I go to the back of the room. Yes. I just want to respond to the first gentleman. Um, all I've 
ever aspired to be in my career as a drop of ink in clear water. Um, and my, um, I mean, when, when, I, when, I wrote, when I wrote for The Spectator particularly, I was very much the, you know, the, I mean, you can call, you, or you can say the, the whatever, the, the, the bad apple or whatever. I was, I, I mean, it, the, the role of, of journalism, comment journalism, is to be the thing that, that goes against goes against the tides. I would not mind being described. If, 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 if UKIP thought of me in the terms that I think of Nigel Farage, I would be most flattered. Could I suggest that the issue which I would like you to discuss or just comment upon um, is overall the media, and by that, newspapers, magazines, internet, whatever, because you all talk about facts, but I think too many people are guilty of adopting or embracing whatever media espouses the facts that they like, that they want to believe in, and what would you say is a solution to go back to what used to be old-fashioned journalism, reporting, just the facts, no nuance, no emotion, and if you're going to write something that is not just factual, then I think it should be in an op-ed piece, and newspapers can just be full of op-ed pieces. No matter what newspaper you read, they tend to be pretty miserable. Okay, and of course it was the press themselves who coined the phrase newspaper, not newspaper. Uh, here. I wanted to make a case for reasonableness. I mean, I think away from the fringes, um, I mean, in the fringes, sort of away from mainstream debate, there is a lot of reasonableness um, debate taking place. For example, at the party conferences, I went to lots of events where there were people with very opposing views but find commonality. And you've got people like Liam Byrne and George Freeman working together on the Future of Work project, obviously cross-party. And I think something comes down to teaching more about uh, critical thinking and how to debate. Um, I go to the, the States a lot and sometimes I'll talk to people who have opposing ideas and I say, no, it's great we're having a debate about it. And they say, what's the point of a debate? And I say, well, I listen to what you think, you listen to what I think. We might not agree with each other, but we come to a common understanding. So I think it's not necessarily trying to find a unity, but just a way of respecting each other's ideas and learning how to debate those ideas and find um, a unified way perhaps which to act to tackle things like inequality. So apologies to those who haven't been able to call and those who want to have a, a, a dialogue, but time is our enemy. Can, can, I just am interested in your responses to the f these two points over here. So the, the, so the point which is, in a sense, maybe we're part of the problem because we're so obsessed by all this crap. Why don't we talk about the good stuff that's going on? And actually, reason hasn't departed. And actually, there are lots of great... I mean, it's not exactly the Stephen Pinker view of the world, but it is a view that says, let's concentrate on the good stuff because in a way, we're, this is a self-fulfilling prophecy if we talk about the bad stuff. And, you know, I was watching Ken Burns' bio, uh, wonderful documentary about Vietnam the other day. And if we think things are bad now, 1968, I mean, my God, things were really falling apart then. And, and you know, in the end, the thing, you know, things sorted themselves out one way or another. So there's a kind of invitation to say, why aren't we all focusing a bit more on the stuff that works and, uh, and, and, the, and goes around? And there's another view which says, just get used to it. People don't want to be, well, you know, the, 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 there is no unity. And somehow we just have to manage a kind of crazy pluralism in the future, whether we like it or not. Between these two perspectives, closing comments, I'm sorry you've only got 90 seconds each. Um, Hugo, I'll start with you. Of course we're part of the problem. We, we are, the, you know, it's like the whole, you, you, you're not in traffic, you are traffic. You know, we are, we are, we are traffic. Of course, of course we are. Um, the problem is that um, this, is, this is what people want. I mean, I've, I've written the, hey, life's not that bad column. People get furious. People, people <laughs> you know, pe pe people are like, how dare, how dare you say that? You racist. Don't you care about food banks? You know, you can, it makes people really, 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 really cross. So I'm afraid I do come down to the, yeah, this is what life is. We just have to deal with it. Thank you. Sorry. No. <laughs> Catherine. 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 
Um, the point about journalism, this is, this is where part of why we are where we are is precisely because of the erosion of, of trust. And it's trust not just in the media, um, which lost its economic model, but also in public institutions. So that's one of the things we're addressing. And I think one of the ways that we address it is actually something the other speaker touched on there, you know, in terms of finding ways to have these conversations respectfully and inclusively and doing it in, in good ways. I'm massively optimistic, you know, it, for all that, that there have been some touchy moments here. I've seen so much progress that we can make. You know, we are doing stuff on a daily basis that makes a difference. And as I said, this turbulence also signals a possibility for benign change. Adisha, you started us off in a pretty miserable place. Finish, no, finish us off in a happy place. Um, I, I completely hear and, and second what I've just heard. I, one of the things that we can all do is get away from telling ourselves a narrative, which is, these are troubled times. We're heading towards some kind of cataclysm. This is so divisive. I've never seen anything like this before in my life. I don't think that that's the case. And I also, I mean, if you're a political analyst, you're counseled against using all of these phrases because they're triggering, they're extreme, and they set the narrative. Actually, events like this prove that it's not so terrible. But I do think that we need to move on from the phase of going, oh my God, trouble times, trouble times, and then look at practical solutions, such as the unification of the opposition, such as really unglamorous things, which never get mentioned, like long-term reinvestment in sure start centers and support for families and housing and education infrastructure. No one likes to talk about those things. Childcare, child free <laughs> universal childcare, healthcare, education. Nobody likes to talk about these things because they're not dramatic. Mm -hmm. They are long-term investments. And if you have a Tory government and they don't want to to tax their rich friends, fine, you don't have to tax your rich friend. Tax corporations, make Amazon pay the tax that they're supposed to pay, and then put it into all those meaningful things. Uh, I think also we need to apply the rule of law to these supra-governmental um, power holders like Facebook and Amazon and Google and all the rest of it. So I'd like to see a return to looking at the laws that we have and looking at the values that we all have. Part of the reason we feel so panicked is because at a fundamental instinctive level, we feel that normal basic human common decency is being violated in some way. But we can take all of that back. Great, well thank you uh, for that. Um, before I let you go, a couple of things. Uh, Catherine and I were both talking about deliberative democracy. Uh, the event is full, but uh, if you want to watch the world's leading expert on deliberative democracy, uh, James Fishkin, uh, he is speaking here tonight at six o'clock. So if you haven't got a ticket for that, then do watch it. There are overflow rooms here if you want to watch it as well. So if deliberative democracy is part of the solution, he's the person you need to be listening to. Uh, thank you very much for coming. I would just say from the RSA's perspective, these kind of events are brilliant. We've had it's been a really fascinating, if somewhat alarming, conversation at certain times. Um, but our view of the world at the RSA is uh, summed up in a phrase I used in my article, which is in the journal outside, if you uh, want to read of it, which is, um, it's not so much uh, hope that leads to action as action that leads to hope. And so for the RSA, the, what we work on really is thinking very hard about what it is necessary to do to drive change in particular areas of society, and that's what we try and engage our fellows in. So if you don't know much about RSA Fellowship, then do uh, uh, check it out because it's growing and it's making a difference to the world in very concrete ways. But thank you all for joining uh, us today, and please thank our amazing panel. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.